Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doylestown Presbyterian Church. It's clear these days it's tough to make time. Schedules quickly become busy and calendars suddenly become full. To that end, DPC is excited to now offer this podcast channel, which will allow you to hear a recording of Sunday's sermon from that day's preacher. Whether you listen while taking an evening stroll, driving to and from the grocery store, or anytime you get a free couple of minutes, we hope it can allow for reflection and spiritual growth during your week. We also invite you to visit www.dtownpc.org to learn more about our church, our various ministries, and online giving opportunities. Thank you for tuning in. So today is a Sunday of many themes. It's the third Sunday of our Be Renewed initiative, and the focus is to be renewed with a steadfast spirit. It's Reformation Sunday, that once a year reminder that we come from a tradition of Reformation, with the motto, Reformed Always Being Reformed. We look to the legacy of Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and others who desired for the practices of the church to be grounded in scripture and bear witness to Christ and not be entangled with political or organizational baggage. They longed for the worship of Christ, the centrality of scripture as the basis for life and faith, and for the reformation of individuals who would live out the depths of the wisdom and knowledge that is found in Jesus Christ, as Paul referenced in Colossians. But today is also All Hallows' Eve. It's a holiday our culture has perverted into some ghoulish extravaganza with grotesque displays of death as joke or dread. Instead of a time to remember those who have died and who have passed from earthly life into life eternal, from the church universal to the church triumphant. It's a time for us to remember with thanksgiving the hope that we have in Christ, that we move from death to life just as he promised in his resurrection from the dead. And so we have a lot of themes to weave around today. And I'm grateful for the choir to setting the the mood and the stage with singing all the saints and a mighty fortress. They've started the process for us. We look to Psalm 51, which is familiar to us. It's a a psalm, a penitential psalm, a psalm of confession that's often used during Lent. We hear it read at least once a year. Some of its verses have been written into choruses that we sing in worship or at communion or at retreat or at camp. And this psalm is surely one of the most profound and beautiful portions of, of the Bible. It is a confession of vulnerability and spiritual longing. But knowing its context, 
how it was written, and why it was written, helps us to glimpse into the heart of God and sets up for us a model as well. It gives us a glimpse into the heart of King David, who, whose heart was broken by shame and guilt, and who longed to be restored in God's favor and love. The background for this psalm can be found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We know this story. The story of David's lust after Bathsheba, the wife of one of his generals and he commits adultery with her. She becomes pregnant and tells David, and he plots and maneuvers for her husband Uriah to be sent into battle where he will be killed. Bathsheba becomes David's wife, and the baby dies after birth. This is a tragic, tragic story laid bare for us in 2 Samuel. It exposes the depths of which sin can lead us. While not shielding David, the beloved king, the one who was identified, who had a heart for God, and the one God had chosen to be Israel's king. And yet the prophet Nathan confronts David with his sin, and David writes this song. He acknowledges his sin and his longing to be restored. He prays for renewal. I invite you to open the Bible in your pew and to look at the text as we're going to spend a few minutes looking at the language that David used and to look at the longing of David's heart. It's found on page 520 in the Old Testament portion. David begins his prayer of confession where he should, with a plea for mercy. This plea was not based on his worthiness for mercy, but rather on the mercy of God. He asked that his sin, his transgression, to not just be forgiven, but to be blotted out to be expunged, to be erased. Again, not on the merit of David's part, but on the abundant mercy of God. The Hebrew word for this mercy is hesed. It is a mercy that goes beyond the love of a mother for a child. It goes beyond the human capacity for mercy that is based on pity. It goes beyond the penitent's uh, ability for reformation or transformation. The mercy of God is grounded and founded in the steadfast, immovable love of God. The hesed of God is where David begins. Now, how does David know about this abundant mercy, this steadfast love? Through experience, through history, through the stories of scripture, where time after time, in the Exodus, in the wilderness, in the time of the judges and the prophets, the nation of Israel had experienced the mercy of God and the provision of God 
even when they were disobedient and rejected God's instructions. Even in their disobedience and their trials and their times of accomplishment as well as defeat, God was ever-present, ever-watchful, and mercy with steadfast love abounded. And so David begins his confession of sin with faith in a merciful, loving God. A mercy that was steadfast. In verse 3 and 4, he takes responsibility for what he's done. He acknowledges that while others have been hurt and suffered because of his sin, it was ultimately against God that he had transgressed. He acknowledges that whatever judgment God delivers is justice. He acknowledges that consequences of sinful actions are not unjust. He acknowledges that forgiveness and restoration often comes with suffering. And he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Then in verses 6 and 7, David reveals his heart. He asks God to teach him wisdom. Wisdom in the deepest recesses of his being. The places of his psyche where he has allowed himself to be deluded by those hyphenated sins of self. Self-centeredness, self-pity, self-serving, self-delusion, self-importance. These sins of which David was very susceptible and guilty of. And then David asked God to purge him, to cleanse him, to clean him out. And he uses the image of hyssop. Now hyssop is a small plant that was often used as a brush. The first time it is mentioned in the Bible is when the Jews were fleeing Egypt at the time of the Exodus. For they took a branch of hyssop, dipped it in the blood of the lamb, and brushed it onto the top of both sides of the doorframe of the houses. Exodus, it tells us that when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorframes, they passed over the household, and the firstborn did not die. Hyssop was also used and referenced in the book of Leviticus as a a brush of cleansing, as a cleansing agent. And so David goes to this ancient image of God's redemption, of God's saving power, as the image that he invites God to use on him. He asks for several things, and we can see those in verses 8 through 12. We see David's heart. He asks for joy. He asked that the joy of his relationship with God would be restored. He asked that God would no longer see his sin, but he asked for a new spirit, a right spirit, a renewed spirit to be given to him. He asked that God not cast him away, but be with him to not leave him. 
And he asks for the knowledge of the joy of God's salvation. He asks that in this time of purging and of renewal, that he would grasp again the joy of God's saving power. And then he asks that he be sustained in this desire. David begins his prayer with a petition, with an acknowledgement of God's steadfastness, that God is the one who is immovable, always abounding in love and grace. David is certainly a model of being vulnerable, being vulnerable to our own uh, abilities to do wrong, to make bad choices, to do things that we shouldn't. He's also a model of what it means to confess to God, to confess what it is we've done, but also to expose and to reveal our heart of longing to be restored. David is not looking for a quick fix for this one moment to get over these feelings and this circumstance, but he asks that God be with him as he moves forward through his life, committing himself to living a life of faith and devotion. He longs to be renewed with a steadfast spirit. Now, one of the challenges of scripture is always, what does it mean to me here and now? What does it mean to you? What do we do with this? How does it impact where I live today, where you are today? About a thousand years later from this event of David, the Apostle Paul was writing to a church in Colossae. Paul was a man who had been reformed, transformed, renewed into a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. And he wanted those who were coming to know Christ to be steadfast, sustained, and encouraged in their spiritual walk. And so he wrote to this church in Colossae, as we've read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. These Gentile believers in Colossae were living under the Roman Empire. They were facing many trials and challenges. They were reorienting their lives around a Jewish Messiah instead of a Roman Caesar. They were being invited into accepting and living out a worldview that was outlawed and in complete contrast to the prevailing culture. Paul was telling, telling them that following this Christ, this Jewish Messiah, was not going to be easy. He prays that they would not be just intellectually curious or mildly engaged 
in learning about this man, but they would be rooted and grounded and built up in him. So again, we ask the question, what did that look like for them? What does it mean today for me, for my day in and day out? What does it mean for us here and now? Both David in the psalm and Paul in writing to the church is talking about a steadfastness of spirit that is focused and on the saving, reconciling work of Jesus Christ through his life, his death, his resurrection, as he has reconciled the world to God. And so in every aspect of our lives, Christ is present. In our relationships, how we treat each other, how we treat strangers. In our vocations, what we do each day. How are we called to honor Christ no matter what we do? How do we live with integrity and honesty? How do we live with the choices that we make of where we live, of where we go, of what we buy, of how we use our time, our money, our resources? How do we live in generosity and faith? Or do we live with a sense of scarcity and fear? How do we live in the very core of ourselves? What are our guiding principles? What are, is our moral center? What is the core around which we see our world and live in it? To who do we live for? Do we live for Christ, for ourselves, for our reputation, for our families, or for others? All of this is bound up in this understanding of having a steadfast spirit that keeps our focus on living for Christ, living with Christ, living through Christ. The challenge of a steadfast spirit is every day. Sometimes we feel our world is falling apart, the bottom's falling out, the bills are due, the family members are sick, a relationship is broken or bruised, there doesn't seem to be enough ways or means, and so our spirits can become weak. We can become discouraged. We can turn to doubt that God is with us and for us. But these are the very times when this steadfast spirit and this prayer is most needed. These are the very times when we should be praying, sustain me, O Lord, renew within me a steadfast spirit. And so a steadfast spirit says that even when I don't know how, there will be a way. A steadfast spirit says that strength will be there when needed, the patience will be present, that faith will be the light in the dark. 
I know that some of you, all of us, in our own ways and in our own times, have experienced trials, and we have experienced the steadfast presence of God's hesed, of this mercy, this grace that never leaves us. I've seen it in my own family. When someone lost their spouse, then their house, then most of their savings, when it felt like the world was caving in and God was nowhere to be found. There was light. There were miraculous gifts of grace that came through strangers. There were opportunities that had never been imagined or thought about that materialized. And all the way through, this family member held on to a steadfast spirit that God was with them and would not leave them or forsake them. We don't know what lies ahead. And so we come to God with our intentions, with our faith, with our thinking, with our being. We do our best. We manage what we can. And at times, we try to prop up our future, our insecurities, our unknowns, within various ways. We save more, we work harder, we give less, we pull back, we retreat. But the steadfast spirit that David is praying for, and which is set before us as a model as well, is a spirit to believe that God will provide, that God is with us, that no matter where we go, whatever the circumstances we encounter, whatever we have right in front of us at this minute is not the end all and the be all, but there is more. There is more that God wants to do in us and through us and for us. We are being invited to be renewed, to be reformed, to be made into the image of Christ, in whom, Paul tells us, is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May it be so. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for joining us on your journey of faith. Don't forget to check out www.dtownpc.org to explore all the ways DPC strives to be a bridge for Christ and a beacon of his love.